Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. This is Career Sessions, Career Lessons. I'm J.R. Lowry. Today, I have the honor of welcoming my longtime friend, Rob Garofalo, to the show. Rob and I both lived in the same dorm our freshman year at Duke, and he has gone on to do a number of great things since then, dedicating his life's work to addressing adolescent health issues, focusing in particular on HIV positive and LGBTQ plus youth. Rob is a division chief of the Patoxnik Family Division of Adolescent and Young Adult Medicine at Lurie Children's Hospital. He's director of Adolescent HIV Services and the Research Center for Gender, Sexuality, and HIV Prevention. He's also an editor-in-chief of the Transgender Health Journal, professor of pediatrics and preventive medicine at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine, and the founder of a 501c3 charity called Fred Says that raises money for HIV-positive youth. He's an international expert and a leading voice on LGBT health issues, adolescent sexuality, and HIV clinical care and prevention. And he's spoken around the world on these topics. He's a longtime board member of several medical associations, including being a past president of the Gay and Lesbian Medical Association. He's been the principal investigator and a co-investigator on a number of national Institute of Health and Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, funded research grants, and served on an committee of the National Academy of Sciences. He's won numerous awards for his work, including the Lori Lane Brenneman Lifetime Achievement Award. He's a multi-year AIDS ride fundraiser, has been quoted in Time Magazine, featured in People Magazine. He's appeared on Dr. Oz. He's written for the Huff Post, and he even offered a book called When Dogs Heal, and appeared in a movie that was screened at the Cannes Film Festival that he attended that year. In addition to his undergraduate degree from Duke, Rob earned his MD from New York University and a master's in public health from Harvard University. Rob is a fitting guest for this particular episode of Career Sessions, Career Lessons, which will drop on April 18th, Patriots Day in Massachusetts. I will be in Massachusetts, in Boston, running the Boston Marathon, raising money for Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Rob, as you will hear, in our discussion is a cancer survivor himself and has certainly used that among many other things to fuel and help bring purpose to the work that he does. So he is a fitting guest for today. I hope you will consider contributing to cancer research in whatever form, in whatever institution, and also consider contributing to some of the great work that Rob is doing, particularly through his charity, Fred Says. Rob, welcome. It is a privilege to spend this time with you. Okay, so take us back to the beginning. When did you first decide that you wanted to go into medicine? I mean, probably when we were in college, actually. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, I probably made, the, I sort of decided back then that I wanted to pursue becoming a doctor. I think I didn't really decide on what area of medicine until I was actually sort of doing it. I decided to become a pediatrician, I think, when I was in medical school. And 
you know, they make you go through all the rotations, like internal medicine, psychiatry, OBGYN. And, and while I loved all of them, actually, pediatrics was the one that I felt most at peace with, you know, yeah. and it wasn't the one that thrilled me. It was the one that I just found the most peace and tranquility in. And it was also the discipline that I felt like I was investing in someone's future rather than preventing or treating diseases that had been built up of a lifetime of bad right. eating or bad habits. And now I had to fix it. With children, I had a chance to work on it from the ground up, as they say. And then in even more specific adolescent medicine, I really decided during my pediatrics training when I just found that I had a real passion for dealing with sort of, you know, adolescents and young adults, which is a often forgotten group in pediatric. And then even within that, I guess it just, you know, I decided to do HIV work in part because I wanted to work with marginalized populations of kids. And that's who I started seeing back in the, you know, in the 90s. You know, my career has taken lots of pivots, you know, most yeah. recently to care for transgender children or gender nonconforming or gender expansive children and adolescents. All these communities that I've had the good fortune of devoting my career to have really just been blessings. I learn as much from them as, as I think they do for me, if not more so. Yeah. You talked about peace a minute ago. What was it that made that an important consideration for you, you know, in choosing pediatrics? You know, someone had actually given me that advice. And honestly, I don't even know who. Someone told me in my medical training, like, don't choose the discipline that wows you, you know, like when you do your surgical rotation, there's going to be many like amazing things that you've never seen before. Right. But keep reminding yourself that the hundredth time you've done a gallbladder operation, it's not going to be as exciting as the first time you see one. And so don't be wowed by like a particular procedure or a thing. Try to look at each rotation with like, which one gives you a sense of inner peace and inner worth. And for me, that was just always pediatrics from, mm -hmm. from the beginning, you know, and it wasn't like I got a, <laughs> I got a lot of support for that. I mean, it's the lowest paid medical specialty. I mean, I was a really good medical student and they were encouraging me to do, you know, something a little bit more, you know, sexy, like radiology or anesthesia or surgery. But those just were never things that appealed to me. I, well, I, and I'm a klutz, so I couldn't possibly do surgery. But, you know, pediatrics was just something that always... Yeah, it seemed a really good fit for me. Yeah. And, you know, and you know this, but both my parents are teachers. So there's something about that, I think, you know, multi-generational type thing. You know, my parents clearly did not want me to become a teacher <laughs> for any one of a number of reasons. But something about medicine and doing pediatrics really felt like it honored them and it honored yeah. many of the values that they sort of instilled in me. I know after medical school, you spent some time both in Boston and in Philadelphia, right? What were those early years of practicing medicine like for you? This is, you know, what, 20 odd years ago. Yeah, I mean, I did my residency in Philadelphia and that was just to grind it out and get through the days and the weekends and right. 24 hour call. I basically did my fellowship and my early training at, in Boston. And, you know, I worked at a place, I mean, I got my training at Harvard, but I worked at a, a community-based site called the Sydney Borum Health Center or JRI. And they really gave me my the roots to the rest of my career because it was a very unconventional community-based clinic that was really devoted to deconstructing the hierarchy of medicine and what it meant to really like provide services both to and within communities, right? And yeah. so it was uh, it was funded initially by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and I was one of their first doctors. 
but it was a very unconventional model, which just I flourished in. You know, it was really about making connections with young people that felt disempowered and disenfranchised from the medical community. And that for me was like waving a red flag to a bull. I just yeah. really loved yeah. that aspect of it. And I mean, I ultimately did not like the Harvard culture much. And so, you know, I look forward to sort of leaving that environment and in part, I mean, it's an amazing place. I put enough pressure on myself to succeed that I didn't feel like I needed the added pressure being put on by an institution, you know, to yeah. succeed. And so yeah. I ended up moving to Chicago in part because I could break out on my own. There was nothing here at the yeah. time that I yeah. moved here. And it was an opportunity to not be a man on a very tall totem pole, but I got to like forge my own, you know, destiny. And yeah. And in hindsight, I think someone asked me this today, like, well, what's the favorite thing about your job? And I was like, I get to create, you know, yeah. like that's probably the skill set that I really feel like I enjoy and tap into the most, like when I get to build things or create. I know when you were out in Boston, you got your master's in public health from Harvard. Yeah. So why did you decide to do that on top of getting your medical degree? And how did that complement the skill set that you already had? Yeah, you know, for me, I thought it was. I always looked at an MPH as a type of calling card, like to sort of scream out to people like, I'm a doctor, but I also care about public health in a broader sense, right? Mm -hmm. I think doctors can sometimes get a really bad rap. And for me, an MPH was the ticket I needed to make sure that people in my mind, that people knew that I had a broader outlook of health, public health and communities. Whether or not I gained those skills when I was at Harvard, I'm not sure. I mean, the, it was an amazing place. The quirkiness of the funding for my MPH came through the Maternal Child Health Bureau. And so I had to get my MPH in like childhood development or whatever the tract was. And mm. it was essentially what I was doing day in and day out. I, yeah, I think yeah. in, in essence, uh, the, if I had to advise people who are going through these things, if you're going to get another degree like I did here, make sure you're really adding skills, you know, not just three letters after your name. And I, I wish I had like been more targeted in the skill set, the skills that I had obtained there, like either around epidemiology or statistical methods or something that would have really served me a bit better in yeah, terms yeah. of like my academic career, which has clearly been fine. But it wasn't really my MPH that expanded my skill set, I would say, mostly yeah, because yeah. of the way the funding was obtained. Yeah. So you came out to Chicago. I know you spent a lot of time in Chicago, not just practicing, but also being a director, division chief in a large hospital. So what's that like? You know, that kind of dual role of trying to practice medicine every day, but also having to manage a group of people and all the administrative stuff. Yeah. I mean, if you ever would have told me 20 years ago that this would be the career that I would have, I would have just giggled. You know, I mean, I never... I don't know. I never really thought that this would be certainly working with like queer young people or LGBTQ youth or HIV or God forbid right. trans kids. I mean, these weren't even disciplines, you know, back then, but it was right. something that was important to me. And so, um, you know, I started off my career as a clinician and then I realized early on that like the biggest deficit to every budget I ever created was my own salary. And so I had yeah. to figure out creative ways of funding myself. And so I became a researcher, right? And if there's mm. one thing that I'm probably known for now in my career, because I've been generously funded by the NIH over the years, yeah, is like yeah. I'm an academic researcher. And that also makes me giggle 
because it's like the, the hat I probably wear the, with the most discomfort, right? Because yeah. in my mind, I'm still this clinician, pediatrician that cares for kids and, and builds programs. And so the admin piece and the research piece, which are now in some ways the lion's share of my responsibilities, are yeah. probably the skills that I never saw coming, that I never thought I had, that I actually was never taught. <laughs> you know, you just sort of yeah. learn them like on the fly. But I actually have come to... I mean, I love my job. I mean, and in part, I've been able to build with with the incredible with gratitude towards philanthropic partners that have allowed me to get from point A to point B. So let's just call it what it is. Without philanthropic yeah. partners, it could have never happened. But I've been able to like build a division and a team around sort of the quirky clinical and academic interests that are really important to me. Mm-hmm. So like I now have this really robust division of adolescent medicine that has its roots in a history of like LGBTQ youth and trans kids and HIV. Like that's, you know, kind of unheard of. And so, you know, I went from, or it was a research team that then added clinical pieces to it, you know, because I was doing so much NIH funded research. And so some days I go to work and I look out the window and I just take a breath and I'm like, how did how? part of my language, but how the F did this happen? But I actually love it. And I think I'm pretty good at it. I mean, if I have to be honest, I mean, I, you know, we now have a team of about a hundred people. I think I have 15 faculty, multidisciplinary faculty. Um, We have really important signature programs and like substance use and HIV and, and in part, we haven't talked about this at all. And I don't even know if you care, but like so much of it is tied to my own personal identity. It's like a gay man, which I, you know, I wasn't even out, you know, in college. Right. right? And so, so much of my own personal evolution and my own comfort in becoming confident in myself has then, I've been able to express that like through my own career. Right. And even, so, and I'm HIV positive, right. And so even the work that I do in, in the HIV field has, has been informed has been driven by a passion that is this odd mix of my career and academic proclivities and my own sort of personal life, personal skills. And, and that even includes our substance use program because I'm, I'm also in recovery, right? And, and so all those things, my HIV, the recovery, all that bag of bullshit, you know, has made me a lot of things at times, you know, maybe a little erratic or, you know, a little, a little crazy or, but it's also like made me really effective, right? Because these are things, these are kids, these are families. It's not esoteric to me. These are young people. These are conditions. These are families that I deeply want to help. And so that I think has in some ways always been the thing that kind of weirds people out in some ways in academia. But it's also been my superpower in some ways. Like, you know, like academics aren't generally authentic. You know, doctors don't bring to the table both their vulnerabilities. And uh, even at at my job, who over the years, I think have become really comfortable with just like who I am. Initially, they were like, oh, Lord, what have we gotten ourselves into here? (laughs) But now I've been successful. And so that's great. And that success has allowed me to talk more openly about those things. It's such a, a, it's a, like a positive feedback loop, you know? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. You know, when you're working with these kids and their families, you know, you can relate completely to what they're going through, right? You were there, you know, in in more ways than one. I remember the first time I talked to donors about my history of addiction and recovery. And I 
watch the poor guy from my hospital leadership and foundation like turn just like gray, like ashen gray. Like he was like, is what is this guy talking about? But I'm pretty good about like reading a room and like, and you know, I'm not going to bring that up with everybody. Right. But you know, when I'm making a connection with a family who's lost their son from an opiate addiction, like, yeah. I know what that struggle is, right? I mean, yeah. I don't necessarily know about opiates because that wasn't my my thing, but I know what the str- how hard the struggle of, of addiction and how hard it is to stay in recovery. And so, I don't have, over the years I haven't had any difficulty like talking about it in a way that for me the boundaries are very clear. I think for some they get really nervous that I'm going to somehow cross some sort of boundary, but for me it's not hard to like to maintain those boundaries. I think sometimes even on social media, people are like, oh, he's going to overshare. But uh, it's all social media is like a carefully orchestrated press release. <laughs> well, it's, you know, you obviously use Facebook in a very different way than a lot of people do at the same time. I mean, it's obvious to me, you know, there is a very strong following around Rob Garofalo, right? And you touch a lot of people's lives in the way that you open up on Facebook. And you know, it comes back to it's your identity and you say, you know, become more comfortable with it and it's intertwined I mean, with how you practice and everything. It's not like I want to cultivate a following. I'm just being like my natural self, really. Yeah, yeah. And the work that I'm doing is really meaningful to me and important to me, you know? Yeah. And I, I think for me, I mean, the funny thing is I never used social media until I actually formed the charity that I did with yeah. my dog. It was yeah. when, and, you know, which was after I had experienced a traumatic event and I had had right. cancer and I had HIV and, you know, I finally found my life again and wanted to celebrate that, right? With this yeah. crazy ass dog that was really cute. So I started this random nonprofit charity, you know, and rode a bike and wash dogs in a dog daycare to raise money enough to keep my website going early on. I mean, I remember when I told my hospital that I was going to start an HIV charity with my dog, they were like, what? (laughs) And I was like, oh yeah, you watch me, you know? And now it's sad, you know, because we had raised, I don't know, we had raised maybe like $300,000 over the past maybe six or seven years. But when Fred died, you know, we had such a following and we had like an, an angel donor that, donated over $500,000 to the charity so that we could wow. give back to the community. And that Fred or I, with a note that said, like, you know, you and Fred have only just begun to change the world, you know? And yeah, so yeah. now that not only do I get to do the work in these communities, but I actually get to fund good people to do the work. is like yeah. mind-blowing to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, inc- that's crazy. I was certainly thinking Fred, you know, Fred passed away last year, but his legacy lives on in such a positive way. So pretty amazing. But I, I know how important he was to you and oh. sort of digging you out of the depths of those dark days. And so that's really good. Yeah. And I mean, in that charity, I also found like my own voice, which I didn't really have in academic medicine, right? I've, I was always a little not constrained because I'm the most unconstrained yeah. academic, but yeah. I wanted yeah. something that was mine, right? That was yeah. like personal. And so yeah. the goofier I made it, the the more successful we were, you know, like yeah. I made a men of Fred calendar, you know, one year. And, and, and the book. That. And I wrote a book like last year, which, you know, yeah. when dogs heal, which was in people magazine. You know? yeah. <laughs> it yeah. was, you know, pretty remarkable, but Again, I've been able to tap into something that I think isn't unique to me, right? Like the yeah. power of people's pets, especially in this pandemic. I'm so 
blessed. I mean, as someone who's had cancer and HIV and been assaulted and had a lot of shitty things happen in their lives. Yeah. yeah. I'm also so incredibly like blessed. And it, one of the biggest challenges for me in my life has been reconciling that two complete opposites can also equally be true, if that makes sense. Right. You yeah. know, like I can have had all those shitty things happen and they're real, but I can also acknowledge that I'm privileged and incredibly blessed to do what I am yeah. doing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, you're a remarkable example of somebody who took a lot of bad things that have happened over the years and have used them to fuel you and have used them to give you purpose in what you do day to day. And that's, I mean, not very many people can do that. I mean, I don't even know how I have to, it was the dog, I'm telling you, you know, like I I seriously was like, I was not going to make it to another day. And then I got this dog and he had no patience for me being like in my head or, or, you know, he needed me to be like present. And so for him, I really got through those early days, right? And that's why in some ways I started the charity, right? Because when I did find my footing again, I did feel so blessed that I knew I had to give something back. And there have been multiple times over the past few years when my day job has been, my day job's busy, super busy. And there have been times when I'm like, I don't know, like, should I really be running a nonprofit charity? You know, like, I don't really have time, but it brings me a lot of joy. And now with this sort of angel donor and and donors, really, you know, a number of people supported us after Fred died. Now we get to be angel donors to like, you know, people. And so it's a remarkable world. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It is. There certainly it can be if you look at it in the right way, right? Yeah. I think the other thing you said, you know, a minute ago is also important. Just this idea that you have to operate sort of within boundaries, right? In your day job. But, you know, you found an outlet in Fred says, you know, that you could really make your own, right? For me, a little bit of why I wanted to do this podcast was for the same reason. It's like, I'm fascinated by people's career stories. And, you know, this is a way for me to do it that's kind of attached to me and not, you know, necessarily to what I'm doing in my day job. You know, I actually asked Lurie Children, who was this, I, I have nothing but praise for my employers, because let me tell you, they've put up with a, enough, a lot for me, and I've, I've done well by them. But I actually, in the early days, I asked them, I asked them to like, take over the charity. I was like, this idea, but I just want to raise money for like your program, right? Right. And I, they thought I was batshit crazy. I mean, they really were like, what are you talking about? And I'm actually so grateful that they said no back then because I was so pissed that I was like, well, I'm going to show them, you know, I'm going to to form this charity and I'm going to make something of it. And believe me, the charity also continues to fund some of the work that I'm doing at Lurie. So, but I'm actually really grateful that they said no and forced me to really sort of do this from the ground up because I otherwise probably wouldn't have done it. Yeah. Well, it's more fuel for the fire, right? Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. I want to write this book like When Dogs Heal. People are like, what? You're going to write a book about people living with HIV that have dogs? And I was like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to. But it worked. It worked. And they were amazing people. I met amazing people writing that book. Yeah. And I got to work with my niece. You know, you talk about like, you know, like my niece who was, I I think she was born right when we graduated from college. But so she's which was many years ago, but it enabled me to form a connection with my niece because she ended up being one of the main writers in the book. Yeah. That also was, has, is like super important to me now that 
Like she got a sense, not just me as a person, but like my life and my career in a way by participating in the book. Yeah. You can't make this shit up. It's super meaningful. Yeah. You were practicing, running your center, doing research, <laughs> running your charity. And we haven't even talked about the fact that you're also teaching at Northwestern. I don't do a yeah. ton of teaching. I mostly do. I mean, I've had like 15 and I I've been really fortunate, you know, to be generously funded and to have really key philanthropic partners from the community, you know, over the years that trust me, which I think that is something that I take incredibly seriously. I mean, if you donate to me $10 or a million dollars, I am a very good steward of philanthropy and I take it very seriously because it's important to me. So now, yeah, I, I do all those things still. And now I'm, you know, I'm doing international work, which I think has been the other yeah. pit, which has been really meaningful to me. Now I've been doing work in Nigeria lately that feels like it's some of the most important work of my career because we're working with like criminalized populations of like gay men and right. getting them access to HIV testing and connecting them to care and I designed a, a medication adherence intervention that now we are enrolling HIV positive adolescents that struggle with their medication adherence. And just that, like, I can take some of the stuff that I've done here in the US where the HIV epidemic isn't over, but it's far less than, you know, what is going on in Nigeria. And to be able to yeah. do this work with a really incredible team. How did that come about? So a, a friend, uh, so I was sitting on a plane going to the International AIDS Conference. And I was sitting next to this guy and my boss walks down the aisle, you know, and he's like, oh, two of my favorite people sitting next to one another. I don't even know who I was sitting next to. And it turned out that I was sitting next to Baba Femi Taiwo, who is the head of infectious diseases at Northwestern, who I'd never met. Mm -hmm. And he's Nigerian. And on this flight to the International AIDS Conference, he was telling me about his work that he's done around HIV in Nigeria. And he was imploring me to come give a lecture, you know, because he said, you know, working with gay men there is, is so stigmatized and I, I've never really been able to get anyone, you know, to have an interest in doing it. And would you come and give a lecture? And so I said I would give a lecture. But the, my favorite part of the story is that the whole time I was like, I don't want to give this lecture. I don't want to go to Nigeria. They're going to throw me in jail. I mean, if I'm going to do academic tourism, I want to go somewhere where there's a waterfall, a little cafe, a beach yeah. somewhere where I can hang out with, not somewhere where they're going to throw me in jail, right? So yeah. I thought I'm one lecture and I'm out, right? Yeah. That's what I thought. But when I went there, he was super smart and he convened this group of HIV positive young men, mostly young gay men, to talk to me about their lives and their experiences. And it was, it was life-changing in some way to hear these young men describe their lives, their conditions, their challenges in ways that uh, we can't even imagine here. Yes. Yeah. And then the next day, these young men showed up at my lecture and they had never met another like HIV positive gay man, you know, that was a doctor. And I left that lecture and I said, I'm not sure how or when or, you know, but I'm going to come back and I'm going to figure out a way to help. And so Baba Femi and I partnered and we wrote this grant to the NIH called I Care Nigeria. And honestly, it's I mean, I'm not someone who hasn't done meaningful things in my career. And yet I think it's one of the most meaningful things I've, I've ever been a part of. And my yeah, partnership yeah. with him and with the team that we have in Nigeria is so very important to me, even though it's still not an easy place to go. And, yeah, and it's yeah. not easy to be a gay man there. And I'm still looking for my waterfall. 
and my mm-hmm. <laughs> and my beach and my safari, <laughs> but it's not going to be there. You've become obviously an expert and a leading voice on issues faced by HIV positive and LGBTQ youth. I mean, maybe this is a hard question to answer precisely, but what do you think it is about you that, you know, what factors led to you becoming so recognized in this space? I mean, I honestly, I have to say it's a, a combination of things. One is that I, I am this, I'm like J-Lo, I'm like a triple threat. I do clinical work, I do research, right? And I'm not afraid to be like authentically me. And, and I think those yeah. three things together have proven to be pretty important, right? And I don't want to minimize any of them. Like I became a clinical expert in like an area, you know, and then in some ways I became an academic, you know, where I published, you know, I've I've done what I'm supposed to do, which is publish a lot of papers and get grants. Right. And then increasingly by doing those two things, it freed me up to also find my own voice, right? I mean, if I was not, if I was a a so-so clinician, and a mediocre academic, I might not feel so comfortable being open about my own struggles with HIV or my struggles with addiction and recovery, right? It's because I have these very traditional markers of success that nobody can take away that frees me up. And like I described earlier, it's just like this positive feedback loop, like each one helps the other one get better. And now it's too late, like the genie's out of the bottle. But I think honestly, it's that I'm I'm willing to put myself out there, but I also have like the cred, the credentials <laughs> and the cred to back me up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. the HIV, I think, you know, there are very few, I mean, this is just true. There are very few doctors, well, an addiction. I mean, there are very few doctors that are willing to talk about either of those two things right. as their own personal experiences. And I don't really quite get it. You know, I mean, addiction, I would say, is still the ultimate taboo, right? And I get it because it could impact patient care, things like that, although my addiction never did. But like, we're not perfect, right? Like, what is this fallacy that doctors have to be perfect beings? I got news for you. None of us are perfect. And so it's okay. But again, I feel safe doing it because people can't take away the other things that I've done, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And I think, I mean, look, this whole idea of vulnerability, right, that Brené Brown and others have made, you know, like a much more acceptable thing to talk about, you know, and leaders in a lot of different situations are more willing to show their own vulnerability. The medical profession is probably one of the last holdouts, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, I guess, risky on some level, but perhaps it's also because I'm a gay man Like, I know the risks of secrecy, right? I know. And so secrecy, concealment has always been a harbinger of bad things in my life. And openness and just authentically being me has always been a recipe for good. And so I know that there are people out there that I'm going to rub the wrong way and, you know, that are going to be like, what? You know, really? Yeah. But I don't care, you know, like there are enough people that are going to hear my voice and feel like I'm talking from my heart, really, and from my soul. And I do think that doctors are not trained to necessarily do that. Yeah, I have a doctor who's, you know, she has had gone through a cancer battle and her husband had dementia early onset. And, you know, it's hard for her to talk about it, right? You know, she's in that patient doctor mode. And to me, it's like, I'm I'm at a point in my life where it's like, I'm in person to person mode. 
Yeah, and maybe it was getting cancer at a really young age. You know, I mean, that was really the first domino that fell for me. I was diagnosed with cancer. I was 39, I think. And that experience, you know, really made me look at the world through a different lens, right? Through being grateful for each day I was given, even though some of the days that followed were dark days. But, you know, really trying to like ride the waves of life as opposed to being engulfed by them. You know, and even with my addiction, which I think was probably the biggest struggle of all of them for me, right? you know, that also has been a battle of perseverance, right? You know, it's not been easy, you know, and I've relapsed, you know, a number of times, you know, usually short relapses, thank God, and I get right back at it. But, but, you know, I don't take any day for granted because it's a vicious disease, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Something you always have to guard against. Completely. I mean, my last relapse, which I've talked openly about was this past year, you know, when my dog died, I was just simply not equipped to handle like, you know, how I felt after that, you know, and so I could either feel shame, Hmm. you know, about that or acknowledge it, get back on the horse and learn from it, but then also use my experience to hopefully shine a light on this disease, on this process, so that maybe someone else down the line will understand it a bit better or won't, you know, have some of the struggles that, that I've had. And so that's is one of the mindsets that I tend to have about life, which is like to share my experiences because I, I sure as hell know that they're, I'm not unique in them. Yeah. And sometimes even like with cancer, with addiction, I think like, wow, you know, I have a job and I have health insurance and I have a family that loves me. I have all these amazing things. And yet like they were crippling. Right. And so what is it like for people out there that have to deal with these things that don't have a job or don't have insurance or a loving family and, and live in a country where being gay alone is criminal. I've that's in some ways how that's just how I have lived my life, which is to just be very aware the impact that I can have just by being honest, you know, as opposed to being dishonest, really, you know, and it's not about lying per se, but it would be about like sins of omission to some extent. We've talked about this a little bit, but I guess as you look back, you know, over the years, how much would you say that your career progression has been a series of intentional moves? And how much would you say it's been a series of opportunistic events? I would put 85 to 90% in the opportunistic event category. I mean, yes, I've kind of had a game plan, but I've always been someone that like looks in the moment at like the opportunity that's in front of me and sort of makes a decision. I was like the the question that would perturb me the most in a job interview, which I would never know how to answer. is like, where do you see yourself five years from now? God only knows, you know, like, I mean, now at this point in my career and and I've over the past year, I've gone through this real soul searching where I've been actively Mm -hmm. recruited for a range of, you know, pretty high powered jobs from like teamships or department chairs. And it's been very ego stroking in some ways, but it's also been a really good process for me to take a breath and realize I don't have to keep aspiring to want to be more or do more like, I'm in the lane right now that I want to be in, where I want to be, working with the people I want to be, you know, working with and doing the work that I, you know, that I want to do. And so I do think in some shape or form, I'll just keep expanding, you know, what I'm doing 
And that's really been in the past year for me, because before then I was like, maybe what's next for me? Should I be like a dean in a school of public health or should I try to climb the academic ladder just one more rung? And then I was like, I hate those. I could do it. Yeah. But I'm really doing what I want to do. And there is some peace, you know, going back to that notion of peace. There is some peace that I have found over the past year in knowing that this is the space that I need to be in. And yeah. so, but it, yeah. there was this acknowledgement this past year that like, head, I don't want to be called by a headhunter. But, you know, you talked earlier, you've created that center, right? I mean, yeah. pretty much from scratch, right? Yeah. No, no, totally. You have built a situation over the years where you've got a ton of autonomy and you have such a strong sense of purpose in working with these kids and their families. You know, if you're a dean, it's like you're going to deal with politics. Department chair, you have to be like the ultimate politician, right? That's oh, not, yeah. you know, and so, and the other thing I think we haven't touched upon this, but I've been really focused about legacy, not like yeah. legacy, like, oh, this is what Rob Garofalo did. But like, when I leave, yeah. whenever I leave, I want to make sure that like these communities are set up not because it's about like me, it, it's not like my legacy, but it's the legacy of of the giving back to the community in some way. And right. so I've been really focused these past couple of years, even with my philanthropic partners about like, how do I make, you know, I've got about 10 more years in me, right? You know, yeah. ideally, God willing, you know, how do I make sure over these next 10 years that like when I'm done, that whoever comes and takes my place, that they are like set. Yeah, And I don't want to say that's super unusual, but it's a little unusual. I mean, I think a lot of academic, a lot of people like, you know, they look out for their own careers and their own, but I've really been driven by like the work and the communities that I care for as much as, as by the rest of it. You've talked a little bit about the strengths that you've tapped into along the way. What have you had to develop over the years and how did you do that? Well, I mean, let's just start off with the negative. I mean, I reside in anxiety. So I'm like a super <laughs> anxious guy. And anyone that works with me these days knows it. I've had to learn to be resilient, however you define that. you know. Right. And I've definitely had to learn to laugh at myself sort of along the way often. Not just, you know, like you just can't take yourself that seriously and want to have the impact and do the work that I wish to have and that I want to do. Yeah. So I think those would be two, a sense of humor, an ability yeah. to laugh yeah. at yourself, an ability to ride the waves. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, one that I'm still working on is not taking things too personally. You know, I think the last couple of years for me in particular were difficult because some of the, especially as a white man in a position of power and privilege, which I have, I think my eyes were opened as to like the programs that I built, the center that I built. I really built through a like sexual equity, an equity lens focused on sexual and gender minorities without as much of a focus on like racial equity. Right. Yeah. And that's just the truth, right? My research, my, the programs, and they were about like HIV positive youth that cared for black people, but they weren't centered in the experiences of let's say black or brown people. And so it's another area where like a few years ago, you know, during the social unrest that we all experienced, I made a decision, like if I wasn't willing to like pivot and now rededicate myself to like yeah. the next five to 10 years, I have to have that, I have to look at the work that I'm doing and that we're doing 
through that like interdisciplinary and racial equity lens. And if I can't, then I should have just stepped, I should have retired and moved yeah. on and been like, okay, I've done really good things and now it's off to somewhere else. But I'm staying in this space in part because I'm really excited about self-improvement in this space yeah. and doing this work better, imperfectly, <laughs> you know, but better. And so right, that would right. be another skill is learning how to be comfortable with being imperfect. It goes back to what we talked about a little bit ago about just the vulnerability and comfort with being, you know, comfort within your own skin, right? That everybody, you know, to some degree develops over the years, some more than others. And that there's, you know, the, the, the recovery journey, as crazy as it seems, has been in some ways some of the most enlightening for me, because what you yeah. learn in addiction and recovery is that, that there's no shame. The only shame is in giving up, right? Yeah. The only shame is in saying, I can't fight this battle anymore. But, you know, continuing to show up, even when it's ugly, and even when, even when you're having bad days, because you know that maybe tomorrow is going to be a little bit of a better day, yeah. that, I don't even know what you would call it as a skill, but that skill, whatever we chose to call it or choose to call it is something that I tap into a lot professionally. Like, you know, I mean, you know this, you're, a, you're an exec, you know, there are good days and there are bad days. Right, right. You know, and some of the bad days are really bad, you yeah. know, but then the next week they get better. Yeah, particularly around like, you know, mentorship. I'm really enjoying mentorship too these days. You know, I'm really focused on mentoring like junior faculty. In academic medicine, there's this like staunchly held belief that you can either be a good doctor, like you can be a good clinician, or you can be a good researcher, but you can't Mm. be both. You got to pick one, pick your lane, and you can only be good at one of them. Yeah. Well, I think that's a bag of bullshit. I don't believe in that. Like the two have really been intertwined for me. Like the only reason why I am a good researcher is because I'm also a good clinician. (laughs) And many of the skills that I've learned in research have also helped make me a good clinician. And so I really believe in this clinical researcher sort of model that um, is not, I think, the conventional wisdom you know, in academic medicine. I mean, you know, they really encourage you in many ways to do like one or the other and never really protect your time enough in one or the other to do the, you know, to do the alternative well. And on my team, you know, whether it's the psychologists or the other doctors, I just really believe that the two are are really symbiotic. You've helped, obviously, you've helped a ton of people in your career in lots of different ways. Apart from the philanthropists, you know, that have funded some of the work you've done, who's helped you along the way? So many people. I mean, you know, we'll we'll start with the philanthropists, you know, like Jennifer Pritzker. One day, you know, she will get credit for really redefining the field of gender medicine for children. I mean, she gave us a ticket to be able to build programs in a way that we could have never done. So, yeah. I know we glossed over the philanthropists, but the, mm. the people in the community that have supported our work, that have said these young people matter, they're heroes to me. I've really benefited from really terrific mentors, like over the years, you know, in some ways, that's why I take mentorship so seriously. You know, I had, uh, when I first, when I wrote my first research grant at Lurie Children's, I wrote an internal award to Lurie Children's and I submitted it and I got this scathing review. And it was so unproductive and it was so heinous that I was pissed off. And yeah. in the review, it was like, this, this idea, Dr. Garfowles is so stupid. He should, that's not what they said, but I'm paraphrasing. 
he should learn from the smart work that Jerry Donenberg. And so I Googled her and she was at a university across town at University of UIC. And I looked at her research and I was like, that's not, that's not, not any better than mine. And so I called her. She didn't know anything about my, the populations I cared about, but I was like, would you help me? And I said, can you help me understand like what's wrong with this? And she was like, yeah. this is really good. It's just not packaged right. And, and so she became a mentor for me, Ram Yogev, my clinical mentor in HIV. I mean, that man cared for people deeply and taught me what it means to be a human and, and a mm. clinician. I mean, so, and then I have colleagues. I mean, Lisa Coons, who has been like my right-hand person for probably close to 15 years and has endured so many ups and downs related to my own health and addiction and recovery. Like she's been not just a friend, but a colleague and a mentee, but a mentor, you know, mentorship is so bi-directional, you know, and I can't even see, I, I can't even imagine doing the work that we do without her. And then, you know, there are people like, Tom Shanley, who's the president of my hospital, who I think early on realized that like by giving me space to succeed, he succeeds, right? And that's not always true in leaders, you know, right? Like they want to get in your lane. They don't want to get... And Tom, Tom, who has I've known for 30 years, like gave me wings because he knew that if I was flying, he would also benefit from that. And so would the institution. So I've just, I've been really... None of them have, would ever have called themselves mentors, yeah. but I've found mentorship in lots of different spaces. All right. I'm conscious of time, and uh, I know you're traveling internationally tomorrow. And you've got a puppy. <laughs> and you've, and you've got a, a dog that's getting impatient. Any final thoughts you want to share before we wrap? No. I mean, I've never actually talked about my career like this, so it's interesting. I would love to interview you back because I'd love to hear a little bit more about like what you're doing because I feel like yeah, fair enough. one direction, and I hope we take the opportunity to like connect and just have a different conversation. But I appreciate the interest in, yeah, in my career trajectory in part, because I think it has been non-traditional in, yeah. in a lot of ways. That's where groundbreaking stuff happens. Yeah, I honestly, like I go to work every day and I'm just blown away by what I get to do, like where I get to do it, who I get to do it with. And you can't really ask for better than that, right? You know, like, and so... yeah. It's all good. So I, I appreciate the opportunity to just yeah, chat. <laughs> yeah, that was great. I appreciate it as well. It's um, you have an amazing story, Rob, in many different ways. Which I, you know, and you've done an amazing job of kind of tapping into all the things that have happened and using them to to drive you every day. Thank you, Rob. This is really good. I really appreciate it. That wraps up this episode of Career Sessions, Career Lessons. I'd like to thank my guest, Rob Garofalo, for joining me today and sharing his incredibly impressive career story and what he has learned along the way. As I mentioned at the beginning, please consider contributing to cancer research in honor of Dana-Farber or any other institution that you would like to support, and also consider contributing to Rob's charity, Fred Says, which you can find online that helps support work for HIV-positive youth. Thank you, and have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. 
We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.